Welcome to Is It Legal? I'm your host, Dave Plow. This week, we're talking with Lonnie Silva about re-entry, rehabilitation, and personal rights. Lonnie is a ton of fun to talk with. She's got a distinct point of view, and she's excited to share it. Before we hit on the subjects I brought her on the podcast to talk about, it's important you get some of her background and understand why she was drawn to practice law. I don't know. I always wanted to be a lawyer. I was always sticking up for people. I come from a very modest background. Uh, my dad is a recovering addict, mm-hmm. and my mother worked her entire life to provide for her two girls. And I was kind of always, I'm an underdog. I grew up an underdog. My family is a family of underdogs. Um, and so I've always found myself sticking up for the underdog. So I went to law school to become an advocate. And at first I didn't know what type of advocate I wanted to become until I was faced with a decision on where I wanted to work. Okay. And, you know, I thought about being a prosecutor and, and then I realized that I, I, don't, I didn't want to put people in jail. And then I thought about being a public defender, and I thought, well, I don't know if I could really zealously defend everybody. Right. Right? Bad so, people out there. Yeah. So I, I, and then I thought, well, what about a firm? Right? And I had interned at a small boutique firm, and while I really appreciated the experience, I just didn't feel like it was a really good fit for me and my personality. I like to be running around and... So it wasn't a really good fit. And in the firm context, you kind of, you're at your office, you know, and I, yeah. and I, and I want, I needed more than that. And I wanted to go to court immediately. Legal aid was a perfect fit because it put me in front of an administrative law judge immediately. And I felt like I was helping my people in my community. And I did so with every ounce of my being. And I loved it. I loved it. And then the market crashed and I got laid off and I had to think of something else to do. So you became a professor at that so point? So I became a professor at that point. Like, I know this stuff. I can teach this stuff, Well, right? I was encouraged to by my um, a lot of my law school mentors. I mean, I, I was a teaching assistant for one of them for con law. His name's Loftus Becker. He was a law clerk for Justice Brennan. He invited me to uh, be his teaching assistant and I did it and he loved it and the results were great. So he thought I was a, a good teacher and that I should just try it. Um, and then my other mentors kind of said the same thing and I thought well when you're in a recession what do you do you go back to school yeah right I come from a poor family I can't just jump back home and think my mother's gonna pay all my bills and my father's definitely not gonna pay all my bills I so I had to think of something else to do and so I went back to school Lonnie spent time at the University of Wisconsin in Madison where they helped direct her towards teaching She's now an associate professor at the IU McKinney School of Law. But I wanted to know more about what she did before she became a law professor. I was a a legal services attorney, a legal aid warrior. So I worked at Greater Hartford Legal Aid, and I practiced in the areas of primarily housing, but I did also a lot of expungements, um, and that's kind of the basis of my research and research agenda here. And I did a little bit of family law. Didn't really like that. It was a lot. Um, a lot of emotions, um, extreme emotions. So I ended up kind of bowing out of that practice group and just doing housing and expungements. How would you, okay, so housing and expungements, what do you do with those? Like, what was your role? Okay, so my role was to actually draft the petition for expungement. So in Connecticut, um, and they have, you have expungements here in Indiana as well. So in Connecticut, um, what you do is it's a pardon. And it's this 10-page um, application, and they ask for 
your basically your whole life, and you can apply for an expungement of a it's an expungement of a criminal conviction. Uh-huh. Okay, and so you can apply for an expungement for a criminal conviction three years after a misdemeanor, five years after um, a felony conviction. And they want references, and 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 they they really just want everything to see if you have been rehabilitated, um, and if they think that you have, then they'll give you a pardon. How do you provide proof that you've been rehabilitated? How what is that? Not, okay, you're so, shaking your head. That so just seems I mean, like it's because it's thing. tricky. Because um, I, I think about my dad a lot about rehabilitation and how he would prove he's re- rehabilitated. So the first thing that you can prove is that whether or not you're taking drugs, right? So they can drug test you, right? Right, and then they can see if you're actually taking drugs, but we know that most drugs dissipate within 24 to 48 hours, right? right? So that doesn't work for all drugs, maybe just marijuana. Um, You can get a certificate from a rehabilitation program. Um, You can provide an affidavit from a rehabilitation or drug abuse, alcohol abuse counselor. But kind of in the context of what my dad does, my dad goes to Narcotics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know how you would prove that someone has been rehabilitated through Narcotics Anonymous. Right. But how? It's supposed to be anonymous. Right? That, so Okay, that does ruin the anonymity. Right? So how right. do you do okay. that? If you, so maybe your sponsor, my father has a sponsor, it's somebody that he can call, it's right. kind of his spiritual guidance. Maybe the sponsor wouldn't mind breaking his anonymity, but I think that's a lot to ask for people. And then my dad's been clean for over 20 years. I mean, how does he prove that? Proving that you've been rehabilitated isn't an easy process. It would seem one way could be to land and keep a steady job. But for someone who's done time, this can be a tricky process. Lonnie spends a good portion of her time working on something called re-entry. Every year, over a half a million people are released from prison. Right. Right? Yeah. Estimates go as high as 750,000 people, right? Yeah. And so they are going to get out of prison and they have to find a job, get some housing, um, may want to go back to school. So what ends up happening is they don't get a job, they don't get public housing, and they may not be able to get a loan to go back to school. And this is because there are over 38,000 collateral consequences of conviction in this country, which breaks down about 750 per jurisdiction, and 65% of those are employment related. Okay. Okay, so we know employment cuts recidivism in half. Study after study after study shows that, okay? But if you have a felony conviction, you are not probably going to get a job, or you will be at the bottom of the list exactly. if not Very outright excluded. Up. Right. Yeah. Even an arrest can serve as the basis of you not getting a job. Why are they going? Why are employers going to pick you when you've been arrested? When they can pick Joe who hasn't been arrested? Given everything else, everything else being equal, they're going to go with Joe who hasn't been arrested. So this is a huge problem. So there have been efforts to kind of ban the box, and the box is that box on every application that says, have you been convicted of a felony? And I worked on this initiative in Connecticut with legal aid, and what it does is it prevents prohibits employers, state employers, um, and any vendors contracting with the state from using that question on the initial application so that it can come up later but at least it's not an automatic exclusion. And you see, you see a lot of success with that. Right, you can get your foot in the door this way. Yeah, and so they do. And they feel, and you know, if ex-offenders are become self-sufficient um, economic, socioeconomically, and it empowers them, right? Right. And I know this because I come from, a, I mean, my, I have a family that is full 
chock full of ex-offenders. So, so I see the results, and I also see the harms of having a, a felony conviction, that even when you really, really, really want to change your life, there's so many barriers to doing so that you almost feel forced to kind of engage back into the street life. Well, if it becomes too hard to go straight, it's you know just kind of easy to, to go back, go to, back the to what you were doing. Yeah. yeah. So they decide to trap. Yeah. Go to the trap, right? Yeah. So that's what they do. And so by public housing paper is also part and parcel of this larger collateral consequences uh, literature and scholarship because I try to focus on things that are going to make a difference, right? I don't want to write about stuff that's not going to matter. And for me, watching, and it disproportionately affects minority communities, right? We know this. And, and a lot of people, you know, we really want to say it, but it's true. It does. And so... We need to get on an even playing field and we really have to start giving people a second chance. And there are going to be those people who don't, you know, really want the second chance and kind of, you know, piss it away. But there are going to be those people that really do want a second chance and will do the right thing. And so I think it's important as an American in particular to give people a second chance and an opportunity. Right, because we are the land of opportunity. When we come back, we're talking with Lonnie about recent Supreme Court decisions on cell phone searches. But first, our sponsor, the IU Robert H. McKinney School of Law, would like to invite you to a discussion on same-sex marriage on March 24th. They will be showing the critically acclaimed documentary, The Case Against Eight, followed by a panel discussion, which you could join in. See their website for details at mckinneylaw.iu.edu. The next half of the podcast is going to look at cases involving searches both legal and illegal and take a look at legal theory. I started off by asking about cell phone searches. So the case is Riley versus California. And the issue in the case is whether or not uh, the police need a warrant to search a cell phone but this is really kind of misleading because it's whether the police need a warrant to search a cell phone if they're going to search the person, search incident to lawful arrest. And that is, a, that, is a, that is an exception to the warrant requirement. And there is jurisprudence on search incident to lawful arrest. Okay. And so really what the case is about is whether or not the court is going to allow when you're arrested or I'm arrested, yeah. the police to search our cell phone. Okay, so they can search us. Right. But if they find a cell phone, they just have to leave it alone. Or get unless, the, they or can get seize warrant. it, yeah. but then they need to get a warrant to search okay. it. Okay. So they can't, so the police can't search your cell phone search incident to lawful arrest. But they may be able to search your cell phone under the exigent circumstances doctrine, which is also an exception to the warrant requirement. So there's two cases. There's Riley versus California and United States versus Worry. So in Riley versus California, um, Riley was pulled over for a suspended license expired tag. And he gets pulled over and they end up impounding his car, okay, and taking him in and arresting him. When they impound his car, they search under the hood of the car and they find two guns. So now he's being arrested for these guns, right? right? So they also arrest him. So now it's search incident to arrest. This is kind of the, the, the doctrine that I was telling you about at the beginning. So they search him. They find his cell phone. They open his cell phone. They see, with text messages, presumably, this CK 
is CK letters, which stands for, in, in gangster world, Crip Killers. Oh. Okay, so now they hand the phone over to a gang detective. The gang detective then peruses through the phone and finds videos of Riley or, or what it appeared to be, you know, a bunch of people jumping around, screaming the Bloods moniker, right? And then they find a picture of Riley standing next to a car that was involved in a drive-by shooting or allegedly involved in a drive-by shooting. And so then he's charged with all these crimes, including attempted murder because of the drive-by shooting, and he's convicted and sentenced to 15 years to life. Okay. Okay. So really, those pictures came into evidence and those videos came into evidence. And so that was served as, you know, part of the reasoning that he was convicted. Okay. So that's Riley. Right. Okay. And Worry, Worry is busted for selling crack on the street. Okay. They're surveying him. He's selling crack. He gets busted. He gets arrested. They take his cell phones. He has two cell phones. The one at issue was a flip phone. They take his cell phone and they, well, the, the phone's ringing repeatedly ringing when he gets to five to 10 minutes after he gets to the station. So they don't answer it, but they see that there's this label that says my house. Okay, I'm assuming that his girlfriend figured out he was arrested, and so now she's blowing up his phone to yeah. see what's going on. Right. But I could be wrong, that, right? Well, that's what I would think. That's what I would yeah, think. So, like so then they, after the phone stops ringing, they open the flip phone and they see a picture of this woman holding a baby. Okay, they go, they then, you know, go into the call log to my house, get the number that's attached to my house, plug it into an online directory, get the address, go to the address, see Worry's name on the mailbox, observe through the window the woman who resembled the picture of the wallpaper on the cell phone, get a warrant, search his house, and they find over 200 grams of crack, some guns, some cash, street pharmacist all the way. So now his little teeny weeny Commonwealth of Massachusetts crack case turns into a super duper federal case to which he sentenced to 262 months in prison, which is over 20 years. Okay. Okay. So the court has to decide, is this permissible? Should we be allowing officers to search a cell phone um, as part of search incident to lawful arrest? And... You know, California and the United States argue, hold on, we have the CELA drop, we have the search incident to lawful arrest doctrine. It's a categorical exception, meaning it's always applicable to everything. The court says, no, it's not. So cell phones are different because they hold a ton of information, and that information can be private, is mostly private, including an internet history where you can see whether the cell phone owner was looking at, you know, WebMD to see if they have symptoms of a disease or, you know, private photos. And then and also, we don't really know where the information is stored. It could be stored on the cloud. Yeah. And if it's stored on the cloud, that presents a lot of problems for who you would serve a warrant to. Right. Right? So the court says cell phones are different. And they really are adopting the First Circuit's reasoning in the worry case by saying cell phones are different. But the arguments that California and the United States made were, were really interesting because they were saying that, you know, what we're really concerned with is destruction of evidence and we are concerned about remote wiping and encryption. Okay. And the court says, no way. You, first of all, you haven't presented enough evidence that this is an actual problem, the remote wiping right. and encryption. But even if it were, when you seize the phone, you can shut it off, okay, 
to prevent the third party signal to the network to remotely wipe the phone. And in the case of encryption, you can remove it from, remove the telephone from radio waves and you do this with what is called a Faraday bag. And a Faraday bag is basically an aluminum sandwich bag that is bought by police departments across the country for very cheap to do exactly this. Okay. So no, California and United States, we're not buying your destruction of evidence concern. You heard Lonnie make reference to something called the exigent circumstances doctrine. I had no idea what that was, so I asked her to explain it. So the exigent circumstances doctrine allows police in emergent situations or situations where there needs to be immediate action to search something. And there's a number of exceptions that fall in this in this exception. Okay. So one of them is um, the public aid exception. If the police think that someone is being hurt or seriously injured in their home, they don't have to get a warrant to go to the home to search for you, right? They can just walk into your home. And we know this from watching shows, right? So another one is this new case that came down, the police created exigency doctrine was struck down by the United States Supreme Court. So if the police manufacture the exigent circumstances, okay, then they may be able to actually still enter your home and search it without a warrant. So with exigent circumstances, we're really dealing with exceptions to the warrant requirement based on officer safety, public safety, or destruction of evidence. And so in this new case that came down in 2011, Kentucky versus King, the police were knocking on a door and they heard shuffling indoors. And they thought that it was actually the suspects flushing all these drugs. And the lower courts had decided that when the police actually do knock on the door, and it maybe it does prompt people to actually flush drugs, that that's called a police-created exigency, and the exigent circumstances, protections, and doctrine don't apply to that situation. Justice Alito said no such thing as the police-created exigency doctrine. And so if the police are afraid that they someone is flushing drugs, then that should allow them to walk into your house and uh, search your house. Okay. So basically a cop can just knock on the door, hear some noise, and walk in. Yeah, That's basically. what that says. Yeah, that's what that says. Before wrapping things up, I asked Lonnie if there was anything that I had missed that she would like to talk about. So I was a legal aid attorney, like I told you before, and um, I was a housing housing legal aid attorney in particular, and I used to battle with the public housing authorities who were trying to evict tenants for violations of lease provisions. So I'm writing an article right now that really focuses, and it's for the uh, University of California Irvine Law Review, Erwin Chemerinsky's Law School, which I'm very, very excited about. Um, And it, it is a symposium edition. Um, for a collateral consequences um, conference that I was invited to in April. But really, it's about um, this specific lease provision that permits public housing authorities to evict tenants in their households for drug-related criminal activity engaged in by the tenant, a household member, a guest, or an invitee. So anyone in the house? Anyone in the house, anyone they invite over. If they engage in drug-related criminal activity, the entire household is at risk for being terminated from public housing and evicted from the unit. So the problem that I identify is that, oh yeah, and I forgot to add, I forgot to mention that this activity can must occur either on or off the premises. Oh, so the activity doesn't happen have to happen in the actual premises. No, you don't have you don't have to be convicted of this activity. You don't even have to be arrested for this activity. You can just be suspected by the public housing authority of engaging in this activity. And while HUD, which is you know the administ- federal administrative body overseeing public housing and public housing authorities, so while HUD 
states in its public housing occupancy handbook that some evidence is needed. We don't know exactly what standard of proof must be met. Okay. Okay, and it's inconsistent nationwide. So Atlanta uses kind of a reasonable belief which to me it could be interpreted as reasonable suspicion. Hartford, the Hartford Housing Authority just says that it will consider all credible evidence. I don't know what that means. Yeah, it was credible evidence. I don't know. Dictate. I have no idea. And Indiana meet, uh, wants the Public Housing Authority to meet by a preponderance of the evidence standard, which is closer to what I would like than any other of the public housing authorities, but still not close enough. So, so I pick this apart. I parse through this, the federal statutorily required lease provision, all the regulations, all of the guidebooks, handbooks. And I basically am recommending that we look at this provision through a criminal law lens and apply more of a Fourth Amendment approach. So we were just talking about Fourth Amendment right. jurisprudence. Well, in within Fourth Amendment jurisprudence is this doctrine called the Special Needs Doctrine, which allows administrative government agencies to invade somebody's privacy, if you will, by searching or seizing, um, based on reasonable suspicion. And with reasonable suspicion, which was, of course, really determined in Camara versus San Francisco and Terry versus Ohio, officials need to be able to point to specific and articulable facts. Okay, that would that that actually demonstrate that you have a basis for this suspicion, and within that kind of framework is this balancing test that the United States Supreme Court says is always present, um, and it's a balancing of the government interest against those of the individual's interest. And I think more times than not, when you undergo that balancing test in the context of public housing and the types of crimes that families are being evicted for, we're going to see that pendulum swing in favor of the individual's interest as opposed to the government's. The two cases you mentioned on reasonable suspicion. The, okay, Camara uh, versus San yeah. Francisco Could and Terry versus San Francisco. Sure. Bit? So Camara versus San Francisco was really the first case um, that started the special needs doctrine. And it was about um, an individual who was, his, his apartment was thought to be an, an, an unlawful apartment. And so these inspectors came to inspect his apartment. He would let wouldn't let them in. And he said, you can't come in without a warrant. Right. But this is not the police, right? This isn't law, law enforcement. These are city inspectors coming to, you know, routinely, if you will, they're permitted to routinely go in people's houses and inspect for, you know, problems or issues. Right. And, and although, you know, this particular inspection was aimed at kind of, um, at this man in his unlawful apartment, um, the question was whether they needed a warrant to get in. And the man kept denying them access, denying them access until he was eventually arrested. And so the court had to determine whether this was permissible. Do these city officials coming to inspect for public health and safety reasons need a warrant to get in? And the court said, yeah. But we're also talking in a different era. Yeah. Right? We're talking, this Camara was decided really in Justice Earl Warren's era. Okay, this is the most liberal era of the court thus far. So fast forward, um, now we're with Terry versus Ohio. Terry versus Ohio is one of the biggest game-changing United States Supreme Court cases ever. And it's about stop and frisk. Okay. okay, so this is like the origination of stop and frisk. It borrows a lot of the reasoning in the Camara decision and basically imports it over to law enforcement. So what happens in Terry is um, Officer McFadden, um, he's a Cleveland police officer, 
he is um, has 30 plus years of experience. He's watching these these two men walk back and forth up a street, you know, eight plus times, and he's thinking that they're casing right. the joint, right? Yeah. And so he ends up pulling them into a store and patting them down, and he finds a gun on one of them. Okay, so the question for the court is, is this permissible under the Constitution? Wouldn't he need a warrant to search and seize? So the court ends up saying stop and frisk is permissible. It is a search and seizure under the Fourth Amendment, okay, for which you would typically need a warrant, if you will, or assess the reasonableness of the situation. But in the context of the day-to-day kind of procedures of the police, we have to give them a little flexibility in, in, making, invest, in making an investigation that isn't very intrusive. So if we think that, if the police think that you know, somebody may have a weapon on them, they should be able to f- stop and frisk them to make sure that, that they don't. And so this is the basis of all this New York stuff with stop and frisk because the police are permitted to stop and frisk you if they think they have reasonable suspicion. They reasonably suspect that you are armed. They can't stop and frisk you for drugs. They can only stop and frisk you if they think you have a weapon. And we know in New York that's been taken and, and, and abused. Right? So, so, so that's, that's Terry. That's Terry versus Ohio in a nutshell. I mean, it's a very, com- it's, it's very kind of convoluted um, and long opinion, but it does set up an, a really important test that if the courts were to apply strictly to, to, mu- to much of law enforcement's um, actions on a day-to-day basis, they would be in trouble. But they don't apply it very strictly. And we want to give officers the benefit of the doubt right. in most circumstances. It's almost necessary as a society to try to give them, in my opinion. Yeah. If you don't, then you lose law it's, altogether. You do. Yeah. You do. I agree. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is it from Lonnie Silva. She gave us a lot of information to process. But before you stop to think it all over, our sponsors would like for you to know that individuals interested in law school should check out the IU Robert H. McKinney School of Law. Students in the McKinney Law JD program have seven graduate certificates to choose from to focus their legal studies in a specific area. More information is available at the school's website at mckinneylaw.iu.edu. I want to thank Lonnie for her time, and I look forward to talking with her again in the near future. Listeners, as always, you are the best. That's it for me, so I'll catch you next time on Is It Legal?